Welcome back to Canes in the Margins, the podcast series dedicated to re-energizing the mental health needs of people with blindness or visual impairment through education, communication, and collaboration. I'm your host, Clarissa Richardson, Christian, mental health practitioner, doctoral candidate, and critical disability scholar. In today's episode, we dive into the concept of power within the mental health setting and how that setting produces a state of power from a socialization process beginning much earlier in the lives of people with BDI. You know, in a time where globalization requires mental health organizations and treatment methods to consider DEI principles, such as patient-centeredness, organizational accountability, and realistic rather than idealistic goals, people with BVI continue to be excluded from these efforts based on the concept that disability lacks diversity. And as a result, people with BVI remain in heavily structured research that leads to poor study replications, creating invalidating and unreliable mental health treatment practices. And my guest today is no stranger to the impact of these socialization experiences as a blind business owner and has dedicated much of her career to exposing the complex lives of her clients seeking mental health treatment, really challenging that unidimensional narrative. I want to welcome Ashley Townsend. She is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice, and she's a business owner of Phoenix Therapy, LLC. Ashley specializes in trauma-based and relational approaches that emphasize client multiplicity, internal healing, and recovery. Ashley, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I'm so excited to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I know, like you said, you've probably been looking forward (laughs) to this for longer and putting so much into planning this whole thing. So thank you. Yes, Ashley, I am so excited to have this conversation as well. So let's just jump into it. We all know that there are cycles of socialization, right? Depending on the context that we are in, you know, we receive social learning on how to be and who we are in this world, right? And when we lean on concepts um, derived from the cycle of socialization, and I'm speaking from research from Harrow 2010, he reminds us that we get systematic training and kind of like how to be each of our social identities throughout our lives. And it's almost like we're getting a lesson and it, and these lessons begin at home. They're then, you know, circularized via friends, neighbors, and relatives. However, social, cultural, political, and institutional introductions, they really shift our perspective to notice maybe a contradiction or an affirmation of what we know to be true regarding our social identities. And, you know, when we examine the identity of disability by way of blindness or visual impairment, we have a very visible disability, right? You know, one that's often predominantly associated with who we are and what we are. And it really does exclude other valuable identities. You know, so there's this dynamism, you know, found in groups. And I know that you have a lot to say about this, and I'm excited to ask you further. But, you know, in groups, there's this idea that we're being introduced to a culture that either confirms or denies what we already know. And this can be better illustrated when we think about uh, Welch's 2017 application of groupthink, groupthink dynamics, you know, in which he asserted that individuals within a group are prone to be more extreme or prone to have maybe more extreme responses than they ordinarily might have because, you know, their own self-concepts tend to be invested in the success of the group. So, you know, it's a group identity development naturally kind of um, intercedes with our psychological selves and, you know, including the conflict that we might be holding implicitly. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of current research on the impact of group identity for people with BVI. In one study by Zabata in 2022, group identity in blindness groups predicted life satisfaction and lower anxiety and depression. 
Specifically, of 187 participants in this study, those with more positive group disability identity attitudes reported overall higher satisfaction in life, and those with higher disability isolation reported higher anxiety and depression, suggesting that, you know, rehabilitation practitioners and therapists like myself and you, of course, you know, may wish to consider supporting clients' mental health and related outcomes by really facilitating, you know, their exploration of disability identity attitudes, which include feelings of connection to the disability community, right? And then one other study um, by the same researcher, researcher, excuse me, Zabata, but this was in 2021, they found that the use of a mobility tool like a cane or a guide dog predicted higher disability affirmation, which is that acceptance feeling, right? But right. this, oh, but here, yeah, but here's what the what was interesting was there according to the National Federation of the Blind, there's only only an average of two percent of people with BVI actually utilize mobility tools, and I I think this data really suggests that there's a relationship between BVI identity and the social environment. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And in your last episode, when you were breaking all of this down, I was just like snaps the whole way. I was like, (laughs) yes, let's talk about it. (laughs) Snaps. I love it. So here's my question for you. I know our listeners um, are eager to hear more about the influence group identity has on mental health factors, such as personal identity, self-efficacy, hope, and isolation for people with BPI. So can you maybe share your experience growing up as a child with your specific eye condition and, you know, maybe how those experiences and socializations affected your attendance to blindness groups and maybe the blind community? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're asking me this question at a really fascinating time in my life because um, I'm 32 years old and I am just now like really starting to unpack this stuff on a different level. Um, Mm. And, and I'm in a really interesting portal of transformation right now where um, for the first time, really as a blind adult, um, I'm making my own choices about plugging into the blind community and, and seeking blind friends. So that is a radical shift from where I started. Um, I have a condition called labor's congenital amaurosis, here to referred to as LCA. I I don't like saying big words and sounding academic. It's just not really like what <laughs> feels natural for me. So um, LCA often gets put under a similar umbrella as retinitis pigmentosa or RP. So I was officially diagnosed at, at probably a year and a half. My mom had to fight um, for my sister and I had to get diagnosed for about two years. Wow. Um, and, and so it took a while for that to become official. And originally what they said was that we both had RP. And my mom was noticing when we were probably around eight months old um, that our eyes weren't tracking objects in the way that baby's eyes ordinarily would. And she's a nurse. Um, mm. And of course, she was repeatedly not listened to over and over and over again. Um, and then it got to be in about high school and I saw a different retinal specialist who said I had to stop saying I had RP and told me I had LCA and, um, they they have similarities and I'm not qualified to talk in a lot of detail about, (laughs) you know, all the different complicated genetic stuff. But one of the really big, uh, differentiating factors is that LCA has typically a much earlier onset, right? That's why we were seeing Mm. signs you know, as babies and toddlers, a lot of times folks with RP are not um, really seeing signs until late teens, 20s, maybe even 30s. Um, So that's a pretty big difference. Um, As far as my experience, though, I was so blessed to be in a family that um, was handed no helpful information. In fact, they were only ever handed what I would call traumatic information. and my parents really decided to reinvent the wheel. I'm the youngest of four children. So the first two are sighted. Mm-hmm. And then there's me and my sister who are not. And all my parents really knew was 
my kids are going to do whatever they want to do. They just might have to do it a little differently. Right. And we're going to figure that out. Okay. And that is not what I would call the most common response that parents have. Right. No, ma'am. Um, they, they were not overprotective of me in the ways that a lot of parents are uh, when they have a disabled child, which I would also consider a trauma response. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and that was so influential for me because I grew up playing outside and I probably fell down and skinned my knees more than your average kid. And um, mm-hmm. I was really involved in music theater growing up. And so um, that was a place where I felt like I got to shine and where I was Ashley mm-hmm. and my um, vision growing up, you know, I had some residual vision. Um and that was a place where I didn't have to necessarily try to be cited for my instructors or my friends. You know, they would like literally help me do the dance moves. They would like move my arm and be like, it goes like this. Yeah. Um, and, um, the, the interesting part of that, though, was as much as I felt like myself in theater and was so fully accepted and had this community and family, um, I was sublimating in that mm-hmm. environment. Ooh. Sublimating. I don't know if that's one of your favorite words, Clarissa, but it's one of mine. <laughs> I love um, it. That's why I got little little tingles. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, like I oof, sublimation and disability. That'd be a great episode too. So, um, meaning that I was taking what I considered to be undesirable and unattractive feelings within myself and perceptions of my own disability, and I was channeling them into a socially acceptable activity. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really know I was doing that when I was doing it. I definitely know it now. Um, so that was always my sanctuary growing up. And then in other environments, like in school, I was trying really hard to get around with this pinhole of vision mm-hmm. um, in my right eye. My left eye has always been kind of cut off because uh, it, it has such low acuity. My brain just can't really do much with it. Um And so in those environments, it was more stressful, but I didn't want to use a cane uh, Uh because of the response that that often elicited from other people. Um, And it's really hard to go through puberty and be, you know, have more reasons to feel like a social pariah. (laughs) um, Yeah, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance because in some ways I really liked teaching people. about braille, you know, or about orientation and mobility when they were interested, but I didn't, they were interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't use those skills in a consistent way because I had partial vision. I was trying to figure out when it made sense to use that and when it didn't. Uh, and I was also trying to spare myself the, um, criticism and, um, uh yeah, ostracization yeah. am I saying that word right yeah, it's yeah. You know, I didn't want to be ostracized <laughs> and um you know so it was it was kind of this interesting position to be in where I I definitely you know in parts work therapy we talk about people have a lot of parts parts of me really wanted to embrace that identity mm-hmm. uh and parts of me did not and and the parts of me that didn't wanted me to be safe you know that was their way of protecting me Um, so then I get into college and in my sophomore year of college, I got my first guide dog. So I am like 19, not quite 20 years old and it absolutely changed my life. And I, one of my best friends, um, who is gay said, you know, you're coming out. (laughs) Well, no, I don't, you know, I said, I don't, I don't know what that's like. I don't feel comfortable, like, you know, saying that about Uh myself. Um, and their response was, I'm not saying you know what it's like to be gay. I'm saying you know what it's like to come out because now you have to live as a blind person all the time. There's no conforming to, you know, visual people's standards mm. anymore, right? Like this is you all the time now. And uh, that is still a coming out process. It is. Ashley, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so my first guide... Hera just completely 
opened up my world and I was moving with freedom, you know, because mm. when you work with a cane, you're moving step for step, you know, you're mm -hmm. constantly finding your steps. It's not an intelligent being. It doesn't love you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It's all about you moving that cane in a way that keeps you safe. Right. And, um, and I don't mind being a cane user now, but um that was so freeing and amazing wow. and the teamwork, you know, of, right. of having a guide. Um, and then Hera, unfortunately, had to retire early because she was attacked by a dog. Oh. Um, and we I hope we're going to talk more about people who are intentionally blurring the line between pet and service animal. And by the Preach. way, emotional service and uh, an emotional support animal, excuse me, an ESA is a pet period Preach. end of statement. Uh, a little bit louder, that. a little bit louder for people in the back, please. For the people in the back, it's a pet, y'all. Okay, it doesn't have rights to public access. Right. Stop it. Right. Um, but I'll stop myself now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so seven years, I was a cane user in between Hera and my second guide, who I now have, for lots of reasons I won't get into. Pandemic, lots of things happened, yada yada, and I had to confront that anger that I had towards using a cane. It was really more about how I was treated for using a cane. Mm. Um, all while losing um, that working relationship with my guide dog early. And I kept her through retirement, but man, was that hard. Um, and so present day, uh, it's 2023. In 2018, I woke up one day with no functional vision. Just oh. woke up and I was gone. Um, and, and in some ways that was something to grieve. And in some ways it was a relief because I was no longer living this life of visual impairment or low vision, oh, high right. partial, whatever you want to call oh. it, where I was constantly trying to decipher whether what I was seeing and perceiving was real or if it was the funhouse effect, as I like to call it. Wow. I like that. If your eyes are open. Your brain is trying to see. Sometimes that's nice. Sometimes it's not when you have some residual vision. Right. Wow. Living in the in-between. So I don't I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, I, I'm grateful that I was raised to be very independent. Um, I wouldn't have that any other way. I would say <laughs> that um, and this is a lot my own doing, I, I developed a lot of compensatory stuff along the way. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I have to be excellent because people are constantly dogging on disabled people or they have such twisted, right. distorted ideas of what a blind person is capable of. Uh, yeah. Um, ableism. I think, <laughs> it, mm -hmm, oh, yeah. I think I took it upon myself to. You know, uh, be exceptional so that I would never be put in that category. And I think growing up as a kid, I was upset with blind people that I didn't perceive to be doing the same thing, even mm -hmm. though what I didn't understand at the time was that they weren't being allowed to step right. outside of the box in the way that I was. So right. um, that has well, been yeah. a journey, you know, confronting my own internalized ableism, Um and it's been so wonderful now that I'm I'm in my 30s and I'm finally making blind friends. I you know, there's a lot of stuff we can just get about each other being blind, but we're friends because we just like a lot of things about each other, you know. Right. It's just been right. really nice. I couldn't find that as a kid, even though my mom was trying. Mm. Um, because most of the kids I was meeting were growing up in these much more overprotective families. And so we just really couldn't relate. Wow. Ashley, that was um, really powerful. And everything you were, you were saying, I, I think uh, I was able to draw in um, just kind of like, imagine what that would feel like. Uh, Cause you know, I'm, I'm sighted. I don't, I, I never had, you know, uh, any type of visual impairment necessarily, but, you know, um, listening to you talk about, you know, having to have this kind of in, internal conflict regarding uh, what you're seeing and what you, you know, what what you're seeing and then what you, you know, what you want to see and and those two, you know, different things. And I, it's just, um, 
it's it's a really it it's it's really it's really sounds like it was really really difficult for you but at the same time almost you mentioned like this kind of this freeing feeling this like it was freedom to be able to wake up in 2018 i think you mentioned with with less much less science and and kind of you know it reminds me of just kind of getting real about your blindness getting real about it and being able to accept in a way what that loss means for you and having that deep dive discussion about you know your own home life values and how how those have change the way that you've, you know, you grew up and the opportunities that you've had related to your yeah, blindness. There's a lot of privilege in, in how I got to grow up. And I'm, I'm very, very eternally grateful um, to my parents and also to my siblings. You know, my siblings did not treat me <laughs> differently for being blind. Um, right. They didn't give you, you know. pity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, your experiences, actually navigating your blindness as a child and even into adulthood, like you mentioned, it, it just highlights the power of rooted oppressions upon blindness and visual impairment by way of disability. Much of what you said really did speak to this and how strong, right, the, those earliest interactions are in maintaining that cycle of socialization, you know, to move forward, liberating oneself, which is what it sounds like you're saying is you were able to liberate yourself in a way albeit much later in your life, you know, in order to do that, it takes, you You have to have new experiences. You have to have new critical thought processes that cause you to question, cause us to question maybe the systems that reinforce what we've learned. And for people with BVI, you know, those systems are quite rudimentary in their reinforcement. Um, you know, we, we talk about in this, in this podcast series, I, I really do highlight the complexity is the systematic process between VR, O&M, and mental health practitioners or otherwise care practitioners, because there's such a, there's such a process of, of forming the, the person, especially when you're losing your sight during that time, right? Um, VR sees mental health and BVI primarily through vocational pursuits. And I know you know this because you, you, you're a VR consumer. Um, and so while that makes sense to most people, it's like, okay, well, VR is focused on vocational. Why would they not be focused on vocational? But the thing is, you know, obtaining, a, I know VR is focused on obtaining and retaining employment, and it's not necessarily providing, focused on providing those psychological supports or services. But my argument is retaining employment requires long-term support, right? I mean, or, or otherwise some type of, you know, holistic targeted approach because we know that the presence of mental health symptoms, both of us being licensed clinical, clinical social workers, we know that these are not always explicit, nor do they always fall in the category of mental disability, which, according to the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, um, is how VR classifies mental health through mental disability, not mental right. illness necessarily, right? Um, right, right. Yeah. And according to... Um, we don't all have traumatic brain injuries. Some of right. us do, and some of us are blind because we have traumatic brain injuries. People go blind a lot of different ways. Right, right. Um, and according to a study by uh, Gizen and Herzler in 2016, assessment and evaluation services, which are a part of, uh, they're a type of service that VR can provide, those services indicated 34% lower odds of competitive employment. Um, and so they were considered a risk factor which reduced the likelihood of them even being received or, you know, given to people with BVI as a resource. So, you know, while VR related services are effective at assessment and receipt of services, most beneficial for, you know, job related goals, the concept of risk relative to assessing and evaluating mental health that reduces the long-term potential of psychological services. And it contributes to unsuccessful closures through VR, which that matters mm -hmm. to them. You know, the fact of the matter That's is when, when people have to choose, when people with BVI have to choose between their mental health and employment, I'm going to say they're going to choose employment. And, and I don't know, I would love to hear what you, what you, how you feel about that, but that's where I'm at. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, people have to eat. Right. <laughs> okay. So there's that. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, Oh, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, you know, it's like, I don't know that it's that people would rather uh, work at a job that is ableist and, you know, um, not healthy for them. 
than take care of their mental health. But, you know, we live in a society where you got to make money to survive. Right. You know, so like what else can you choose? Right. Is there even a choice there? Right. And that's that's what I'm trying to say, that that it's it's inequitable because I don't have to worry about that. I guess if I'm trying to say, I don't have to worry about that. Um, You know, I don't have to worry about disability getting in the way um, necessarily for me to say, hey, boss, I need time. I need to go see my therapist. I don't I don't have any any anxiety related to what that would mean for my employment, if that makes sense. Um, And so I'd like just real quick, if you can share a little bit about your experience with VR services. I know that you're an ongoing consumer, but, you know, just a little bit about what your experience has been like. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So that's, you know, VR or what in Florida um, was called Division of Blind Services, um, or at least, you know, the branch that I'm interacting with has has been a part of my life on and off since I was a kid. Um, I want to say that in many ways, my opinion has, has improved over time. So what I mean by that is I did not like it as a kid mm-hmm. um, because this plays a huge role in my internalized ableism. There were these um, VR counselors that would come out to my house every once in a while and they talked to you and they were nice, you know. Um, the ones that I was interacting with were oftentimes blind or low vision. And, um, you know, I didn't understand this as a kid. I couldn't pinpoint it. I just knew I was irritated and annoyed. Uh, I, I know now that that was because the strong impression I was being sent was that that was the only thing I could do when I grew up. Mm. And I really resented that idea, right? Like nobody's going to tell me that I can't go for my dreams. And because I'm going to go blind, this is the only job I can have. Yep. And so I really looked down on not just the service, but the job, if I'm being honest. Okay. And I looked down on blind and visually impaired people in that field. I no longer feel that way. No, I understand. That had everything to do with, you know, feeling like I was being put in this very limiting box. Um, I now know all of these wonderful uh, voc rehab folks that are blind and sighted that I'm like, you guys are changing the world. Um, I think a lot of them are better therapists than most of the therapists I know. You know, I I have all these glowing things and feelings um, around these people. Uh, But as a child, oh, it was terrible, 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 terrible. And then intermittently, I would get somebody really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, well, I like him. You know? <laughs> um, and, and Michael Elliott, who was on the podcast, yes. was one of those people for me. Um, you know, and then and then later uh, in college, Tiffany Baylor was one of those people for me. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I just I had this really fraught relationship with it over, that slowly started to improve over time um and where i was i was connecting with counselors who weren't kind of placing these limiting beliefs on me um but they were real about what you're going to deal with in the real world and they were very compassionate towards it um right so you know that was a big part of how i got technology that i needed and just experiences that i needed you know got to like um get a sense of how you can set up a kitchen and different um things in the home and do little tricks to just make your life easier. Um, right. So yeah, there was that. I feel like I lost my train no, of thought here. No, no, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah. Like current, current day, I still on and off do O&M. I want to be safe. Right. Um, I also want to teach new things to my guide dog in a way that's clear and safe for both of us. And sometimes it's nice to have a trained individual to help you on the front end of that process. Um, and I still get tech services cause you know, tech is forever evolving. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And so and right I- now I have a VR case that is a self-employment case open, um, so that I can be doing things as independently as possible and, you which know, I, making I, the inaccessible accessible. Yeah. Which I have to say is just, uh, for me, mind boggling that you have, that there's a service, um, uh, that, um, helps uh, people with BVI uh, become successful entrepreneurs and self-employment. And I just think that's amazing because it definitely is a, is not something that's uh, generally provided, at least not in Florida, 
Um, sure. Or, or if it is, it's, you know, it's made secret, right? Right. And um, I, I have to say that uh, my experience in Colorado has overall been different um, in terms of transparency about what services I'm entitled to as a consumer. Right. Also, I think we need to use that word entitled to that, that phrase without, um, right. Any negative. Like we're being Karens or something, you right. know, like I need to use technology to keep any job in no, today's it's true. world. It's a hundred percent to that. <laughs> no, I love that. And you're right. Uh, it's a hundred percent true. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, it's such a good it's such so good to hear about the different experiences with VR because VR is not bad it's it's oh. an excellent resource you just have to you know I think that it can be really difficult for people who don't have that peer support which we've talked about before but um I really appreciate that Ashley and I, I kind of want to move into what you do really quick because I think it's I think our listeners would love to hear that um I know there's a lot of resource that talks about um, current research. There was a current uh, review done, a literature review on mental health outcomes and treatment approaches for people with BVI, like what has been done and what's been working. And the researchers found there was uh, very little um, holistic-based target outcomes, um, as well as uh, interventions that were looking at other things other than the visual impairment and aiding someone through skills-based training and problem solving to manage, you know, daily activities, things that, you know, are very closely aligned with O&M. And so, you know, I've surmised that mental health practitioners just, and even in private practice, maybe not affiliated with VR's referral process, but just even if they are, but mental health practitioners can use varied approaches and models of care in their work, you know, with people with BVI, they can, and but they often rely on the context, right, of VR related referrals. That's what the research says. Can you just share maybe your experience accessing mental health services, either through VR or the community? I know we had mentioned, you had mentioned in a pre-interview that was, that was um, a different experience for you. Yeah, VR so, so far in my life um, hasn't been the connecting uh, referral source for therapy. I've just always kind of done that on my own when I've been in and out of my own therapy. Um, so... Yeah, that's an interesting mix for me. That's a really interesting mix for me. So uh, I actually had a blind therapist at one point. Um, Yeah, yeah, which in some ways was really connecting. Um, And in in some ways, it was just not the right fit. You know, I think people would assume, oh, if you had a blind therapist, that would be... (laughs) perfect um that there were some things that were said to me that were actually wildly inappropriate and hurtful um you know that ruined whatever trust we had built so i i moved on um there's been some therapist shopping i did where i also had some sighted therapists that uh i had this one somatic experiencing right so we talk a lot about being in the body and how does that feel and where does that resonate in your body that kind of thing right mm-hmm. um and I don't know if she did this with all her clients but I do know that she did it with me so I have a very expressive face even when I'm trying to have a neutral face most <laughs> of the time it's gotten me into trouble in the past um so we would be doing therapy of all things I would imagine most people's faces do stuff in therapy. And she would say, oh, your your right eyebrow just moved a little. You know, just like these really mm-hmm. like detailed comments on everything my face did. Um, mm-hmm. And it felt like I was just sort of being analyzed in this way that didn't really feel helpful or constructive. Um yeah. So, and, and I don't know if that had anything to do with my blindness. It kind of felt like it did, you know, sometimes it I get like commentary <laughs> from other therapists about, you know, we have to observe body language, body language, body language. Uh, okay. I'm not going to discredit that, but I will say this. Mm-hmm. How often is your outsides not congruent with your insides? Lots okay. Of times. <laughs> your face, your body, is doing something on the outside and internally you feel something completely different. Right. Why? Because I'm trying to appease people because I'm trying to keep myself safe. Because mm. I don't want people to know that I want to cry. 
right? Or whatever it is. Right, right. So, you know, my argument would be that visual therapists are actually often more distracted than they are attuned for that reason. Mm. Because they're just seeing is believing, right? I see it. It looks like anger. So that must be it. Wow. Yep. Wow. I so really appreciate idea that I'm missing something. I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, you did. Part of I'm, it. I didn't mean to interrupt, please. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's been a lot of that or people will like ask how my clients react to me being blind. And I'm like, I mean, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's like, they're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Or that's cool. Or sometimes they ask me questions that are a little inappropriate. Eh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but not, I don't really see much of that at all. And one of the things they don't consider is a huge part of my background is in working with survivors of domestic violence and human trafficking. Mm. And, and like in that acute moment in shelters, right? People are fleeing for their lives. Right. And wow. what they don't consider is how many times I have sat across from a person who is in so much pain and they'll say, you know, you don't look at me like everybody else. Wow. People come in physically very hurt. And, you know, with like, I'm trying to say this in the most sensitive way possible. It is very common for people to come in and their whole face is just horribly hurt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, understandably visual people look at that. It's a little hard to not have some kind of reaction. You're right. Wow. It's gut wrenching. It's, it's, it's horrifying, you know, to see. Um, and I don't, I just want to get to know the person in front of me. And so what they don't understand is that I, I, I don't experience my vision loss as a therapist, um, as a detriment in any way. And I don't think my clients do either. You no. Know? And if that were the case, I, I wouldn't have the retention rates that right. I do. <laughs> that is amazing. That's incredible. I love the way that you explain that. Um, it's it's um, insightful for me because, I, you know, I'm a sighted therapist and I, I, I will say I, I do um, use my sight to kind of do, you know, a lot of what you mentioned with the observation and um, understand, you know, trying to get that emotional intelligence part. But I think what you're trying to you know, say is very important because we need to remember that when we're, when we're focused a lot on what we can see, we, we miss a lot of the other things. Um, we miss a lot of, um, opportunities, I guess, to, to really relate to someone without all that baggage of what we've come, come into the session with based on what we're saying. You know what I mean? It's something I'm not taking away from it. No, no, but it's not everything, but it's not everything. No, it's, and and you give a really good, you give a really good um, perspective as being, as having, um, as, as being a therapist with blindness and, and what, what you, how you use your, your blindness to really read your clients and, and also provide them with a safety net that not everybody can do. It's just really incredible, actually. I hope I'm not offending you when I say that, but. Um, no, no, not at all. And, you know, like a lot of clients have body image stuff. They're really tired of video sessions. Mm, you yes, know, right. um, or they're really tired of feeling like they're being looked at, you know, right. people who are struggling with eating disorders and, and all kinds of things are real tired of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's some comfort in it, you know, Absolutely. that I'm not, you know, looking at them, right? right. Like that feeling that they get with probably every other human they're interacting with. A lot of times I am people's only blindness exposure. Wow. You know, Ashley, when I think about the work that you do now, it does sound a lot like liberation health, right? I mean, liberation health theory, uh, it's one of my favorite theories that you probably are familiar with it, but it's a combination of radical social work, liberation psychology, and Paulo Freire um, and his his information about, you know, uh, the oppressed and popular education. And it focuses on expanding that traditional casework into actionable practices that really serve to disrupt the interplay of dominant socio-political forces. And so like in a participatory sense, clients become subjects really developing a new consciousness that 
rejects that passive sense of self. And that allows for a meaningful pro- you know, progression uh, of healing to really occur in the context of their problem. And we've been discussing the concept of socialization, you know, having that reinforcement technique or that reinforcement effect, um, reinforcing not just the social narrative of what it means to be blind or visually impaired and the presence of mental health symptoms, but also a reinforcement of professionalization, right? Among VR, O&M, and mental health practitioners. And so there's this causal sequencing that's, that occurs that centers the impairment causal to someone's suffering. And then you've been really highlighting this in a beautiful way because, and so what my point is it affects problem solving, right? It, it affects problem solving. It affects action efficacy and it affects the way that we feel about, you know, ourselves, especially people with BVI when we're talking about these, these forces. So um, I just, I would love to hear more about what you, how you feel about that, that, that type of reinforcement among those um among that that system and maybe yeah, of the professionalization yeah and like the, the very clinical yeah way of of showing up um yeah well, and maybe maybe i'll ask you this and this will be a better question as a mental health practitioner what approaches or theoretical frameworks or concepts do you actually employ and and what do, what would you suggest might be helpful for people with bvi yeah 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 so i'll start by saying this no matter what you're doing, whether you're in, in VR, whether you, you know, hold the label of licensed clinical social worker or licensed professional counselor or whatever it is, right? Um, we all kind of do the same jobs in certain ways. And what I mean by that is people are whole and they might not know that about themselves. But however you show up to that person, please show up knowing that in your heart, in your gut, in your bones. People are whole as they are. Um, so if I were to say that that fits into a, a theoretical framework, you know, I would I would call that a humanistic practice. Yeah, absolutely. I really believe the only way anyone should be practicing is first and foremost from a humanistic, holistic place. Yes, agreed. Um, and that's my bias. And um, I've I'm sticking to it, right? <laughs> uh, and when when you brought up liberation health, you know that's something I'm vaguely familiar with. And then when you started bringing it up, I'm like, I want to read more up on that because it, yeah. it's beautiful. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that that really resonates with me. And and you've got to know what you believe more so than what you've read. Yes, right. Um, textbooks are only worth so much. Um, like you've really got to know what you believe and why you're in this. And I think what's happening with this emphasis on professionalization that we see within VR, that we see within the therapy field, which breaks my heart, um, is it, it's really selling bureaucracy is what it's selling. Yes. So, so my definition of bureaucracy is when people get treated like paper and paper gets treated like people. I love that. Did you come up with that yourself? I sure did. I sure I did. Yeah. I mean, it's, but that's just what it is. Like, right. I'm so it tired is. of <laughs> saying anything else. That's what it is. It is and, exactly that. You know, we have to remember that as therapists, we're attached to agencies, right? These larger systems, or even if you break into private practice, there's still things like insurance and people mm-hmm. are still that, that are coming to you are affected by systems. You don't ever really get out of the system. You know, in VR, you're attached to this huge governmental system. So you have to be real about the the bureaucracy that that you're having to navigate. Right. And you have to know who you are. And it takes a lot of strength to show up as who you are to bureaucracy. Yes, and, it takes a lot of courage. The, yeah, that's the that's the real rub, and that's the issue we're seeing. And, and people are intimidated into kind of conforming to the bureaucratic standard, which right. also gets oh. called professionalism, right? In my mind, they're kind of the same thing. Um, you can hold appropriate boundaries with a client without being this cold clinical um, robot with your right. formulaic responses. And that person who is going through whatever they're going through, whether we're talking about blindness and low vision, whether it's 
a sudden vision loss, you know, due to some tragic accident or whether it's been this long, kind of confusing, ongoing progression or however it's happening is a whole person. I love that. And the, the trouble is that when we're encouraging um, VR folks or therapists to be cold and clinical, then we're also really failing marginalized folks. There okay, like how much of what that person is experiencing and suffering from are we not hearing because we are sitting in our professionalism, right? <laughs> right, And what's weird is professionalism often encourages us to just straight up play devil's advocate, it which does. means to deny someone's marginalization. It does. It does. And you're bringing up, you know, the theory of intersectionality. Uh, you know, I love Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw and just the multidimensional implications, implica excuse me, implications of, of trauma, of mental health issues. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I, I just love everything that you're saying. And I want to, your candidness is so necessary as well. And I just, I really hope when people listen to this, that they can feel a little bit more courageous about their story, but I want to end this, this uh, today's session with a question that I ask every guest, because I think it's so important for our listeners to understand that blindness is not a general experience. Um, in 2004, researchers Hahn and Belt conducted a seminal study that asked participants with disabilities to answer controversial and critical qu questions related to disability identity. And the question that stumped them the most was, if a magic pill existed that could cure your disability, would you want to take it? And the reason it stumped them was due to that, we, what we've been talking about, just mixed findings. Um, and because, you know, everybody would think that, of course, everybody would want to take that pill. Anybody who has any type of disability would just jump for that pill, right? So I ask you, if a magic pill existed that could cure your blindness or visual impairment today, would you want to take it? Okay, so I got to I gotta first clarify that I am only speaking for myself and I respect everybody's answer to this question. I, I really do. Mm -hmm. um, so we are living in a world that is built for sighted people and intentionally built to exclude those who are not. And that has been very painful for me. That has been more painful for me than losing my vision itself. If I haven't made that clear before, I want to say that now. Um, and, and my journey and the purpose that I have found, one of the purposes I've found in life is that I want to change that. I want to change the sighted perception. I want to change the vision industrial complex, which are the belief systems that permeate people, places, and things, and systems, and insist on saying that to be sighted is to be more legitimate. You know, mm -hmm. to be blind means that you are broken, that you are not whole, that you are lesser, that you are less capable, right? I want to challenge that. I want to see that change. I want a magic pill for that. <laughs> right? Okay. Yes. Because I'll what I that. want is a world where we all truly understand and live the message that everybody is whole as they are. Right. Doesn't mean you're, you know, that there's anything wrong with a, a blind or visually impaired per, uh, person who would like to see that's perfectly valid. And understandable. Um, right? You know, but I'm just speaking for me, you're talking about the wrong magic pill, Clarissa. Like <laughs> I have a different idea for what magic pill we actually need. Uh, um, and I, yeah. um, who knows, you know, maybe one day I have a kid and that changes for me. I maybe one day it's like, Oh, I just so badly want to see my baby's face, but that's where I am mm. right now. And that that's really all I can speak for. Um, you know, there's, there's a phrase that often gets used um, in the blind community where we talk about helping this uh, light dependent, meaning people who depend on light, sighted people, helping the light dependent to see. <laughs> you know? I 
and you guys help me to see at times and I really appreciate that right but like I think there's there's this idea that like sighted people are the benevolent accommodators Mm. I am accommodating sighted people right (laughs) every day of my life they have no idea they have no idea I'm assimilating to their norms I you know what I mean like I do. Um, it's it's an, it's not I that I don't it. appreciate people accommodating me. I do, but please stop patting yourselves on the back for it. My God, I just right. stop it. Ugh. Powerful, powerful, powerful. I I love your answer, and I love that you swing it back at me and said, "No, we don't need that. We need this type of deal." And it's it's so true. Oh, no, it's not your question. It's no, no, question. you're good. I'm just saying, like, no, you know, that's, that's me looking at the social model, right? I am like right. deep, deep, deep in social model of disability, right. and that's just me. That's just right. me. The medical model has really hurt me, mm-hmm. um, in my life, and by well-intended people who love me, it has hurt me deeply. You right. know, I just want to be blind and have that be okay. Period. Yeah. Right. No, I appreciate your honesty and your transparency, Ashley, especially with this question, because this question was not tailored for uh, to, for you to speak on behalf of all people with BBI. It was tailored for you and your experience yeah. and your your diverse experience related to your blindness. And so you've answered that eloquently and very in a very powerful way. So, you know, we have covered the unique impact of socialization experiences rooted in disability and tragedy for people with BBI, and more so how these roots are often reinforced by the systems intended to provide quality of life benefits. Critical dialogue between Ashley and I and information about the limitations of both the medical and social model were also highlighted. Um, You know, we've also emphasized the importance of group identity as a mechanism by which people with BVI may be challenged to kind of face their self-concepts, very much uh, similar to how Ashley explained her her experience now. So I just want to thank Ashley Townsend for her willingness to be on the show today and just for her candid, thoughtful, and critical analysis of these these really, really um, important topics related to mental health and blindness. And um, I want to encourage my listeners to subscribe, keep listening, keep seeing things differently and keep seeing with more than just your sight. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I really, really appreciate it.